I'm Patrick Mead, your host of Itim, and today I'm sitting down with Mr. First Take, Stephen A. Smith from ESPN that he had a lot of things to talk about. By the way, you're going to find out about his story and the influence his mother had on his life. And then later on, we talked about who he feels was the best in doing interviews, you know, post-game interviews. And then we did a draft pick at the end. He picked his five. I picked my five, except he had first pick. I had second pick. I'm very curious to know who you think would have won once you hear his five versus mine. So if you enjoy sports, if you enjoy ESPN, you're going to love today's sit-down. Stephen A., brother, thank you for making good the time, man. Yes. How you doing? How's everything? Very good, very good. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Sounds like you had an eventful day today. Yeah, Pretty it was exciting eventful, day. but I'm yes. going to keep that to myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. Uh, high school, mm-hmm. I'm with you. 10th grade, 11th grade. Who's Stephen A. Smith? Skinny kid. From Hollis, Queens, New York, um, striving to make it, make something of myself, uh, but very, very scared about life. Really? Um, coming from the streets of New York City, growing up poor, knowing that you wanted to capture a level of success for yourself, and then wondering how you're going to maneuver yourself through the terrain of life and all that comes your way. Um, wanting to play high school basketball targeting a basketball scholarship because you need a free education. You don't just want it, you need it because mm. your parents can't afford to pay for your education. Um, and also making sure that you stay away from the game. You know, drug dealers on the corner, around the block, in the park, et cetera, et cetera. And you stay away from the allures of life, the easy buck. Uh, you know, you're starving and, okay, I only got about three outfits, wearing the same outfit at least twice a week. Uh, never having a car, wanting a car, wanting those other things that going on the wrong side of tracks could get you if you're after an immediate gratification. And just making sure that you're finding a way to avoid those things, incentivized uh, by somebody that you consider to be the greatest human being alive, that was my mom, Mm. God rest her soul, and my family, four older sisters, my brother had passed away, um, not at that time, obviously he was still alive, but he was a traveling salesman before he was in the military. So just dealing with all of those different things. A father that I didn't have the greatest relationship with, but he was still my dad. Um, just finding a way to make it and, and trying to figure out how I'm going to do it because the only idea that I had is basketball. I didn't see another path at that particular moment. Since what age? Um, in terms of basketball. What age did you fall in love with the game of basketball? Oh, no, no, no. That was from the time I started watching basketball games. I was four or five years old. Got it. I didn't realize right. I could play until, you know, later on. And so, you know, when people started talking about you and talking about your skill set and how you could get a free education and knowing that that would enable you to not have to depend on your mom in order to pull it off, you know, that was the target. That was the goal. If, if, if I'm in high school with you, we're sitting in the classroom uh, together, are you the guy that's constantly debating? I don't know about that. What about this? How about this? Why yes. not this? You were that guy. I was always asking questions. Okay. I wasn't debating. I wouldn't say I was debating because the teachers didn't allow you to necessarily do that. But I always had questions. I was always inquisitive. 
uh, particularly when it came to politics and social issues Interesting. Um, and English. I wasn't that strong in math. I wasn't that interested in math, but I was interested in stuff like political science. I was interested in politics. I was interested in some of the, you know, just the things that went on behind the scenes. What led somebody to think the way that they think, articulate and elocute their thoughts the way that they did? What were the kind of things that went into that thinking? What was the difference between what you thought and what you ultimately disseminated to the masses? I always thought along those lines. I didn't necessarily have the answers, but I always thought about it because there was too many times mm. that I looked at television and, I, and I'm definitely a product of the television generation. There were too many times that I'd look at television and I saw people who just were not believable. They were highly credible, but not necessarily believable. Wow. Because they tried to, because you remember back in the day before commentary and pundancy really, really took off. With this generation, back in the day, everybody was cookie cutter straight shooters. You might have known the facts, um, but unless you could prove it, you danced that dance, uh, that dance of neutrality and um, just straightforward um, objective reporting as opposed to editorializing and things of that nature. You didn't see the talk show format all over the place. Like you see on This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Sure. Or it was This Week with David Brinkley. Mm. But when you saw Peter Jennings or Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw, the list went on and on, you saw relatively straight shooters. You saw uh, a Ted Koppel on New a ABC News Nightline, straight shooter. Sam Donaldson covering the White House, straight shooter. His delivery, his presentation, his diction, etc., it came across in such a way um, that you kind of sensed what he was feeling. But the facts that he was spewing, the substantive stuff that that came oozing out of his mouth, it was straight down the line. There were no chances with the editorializing. And that's what made it interesting. The first person that really, really gave me the idea of, of, of being able to editorialize an opine was Howard Cosell. That was the first person that I saw that I looked at, which is why I loved him so much, because that was the first person that I saw on TV and said, I believe him. No matter what he says, because he made himself come across as very, very believable about whatever it was he felt. You could challenge it. You can question it. You can object to it. But what you couldn't do was look at him and say he doesn't mean what he says because you always knew. He meant what he said. So, so <laughs> when did you go from the level of curiosity where you're asking because you're curious to now having an opinion about things? <sighs> well, I would tell you that that didn't come until very, very later on in my life as my career evolved. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. If you remember, I started off as a newspaper writer. I was a writer for the school newspaper, disc jockey for the school newspaper and stuff like that. And I grew up in an age before social media. Um, before um, the blogosphere and what have you. And so as a result, you were taught that you had to work your way up to the point where you had a license to editorialize and give commentary. Before you were a general sports columnist, you were a columnist covering one of the leagues. Prior to that, you were a beat writer or a features writer or an investigative writer and reporter one of, if not all of those different positions before you were given a license to editorialize and express yourself. And so the objective and the goal all along from day one was to ultimately elevate yourself to being a general sports columnist. And so I started off as a intern and then I became a high school writer for the New York Daily News after interning at the Winston-Salem Journal, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Greensboro News and Record. I was being, I was doing, um, my job title was an editorial assistant. I did calendar, I, I, calendar items and school lunch menus and things of that nature 
from 8.30 a.m. to 6 at night. Wow. And then from 7 p.m. to midnight, I covered high school sports, high school football in the Piedmont Triad area for the Greensboro News and Record for free. I did that on my own time. The goal was to always accumulate published clips because I knew coming from an historically black college like Winston-Salem State, if I was going against people from Columbia to the University of Missouri or Northwestern, the UCLA or whatever, and it was their school against my school, my credibility would be challenged because my degree was in mass communications and it wasn't known for journalism per se as an institution, as an HBCU, while those schools were renowned for having journalism programs. Mm. And so I knew that I had to accumulate practical experience, publish clips or whatever, because if I did that, then I could walk into an office and sell my work to a potential employer, not because my work was better or more gifted than the mm -hmm. other people, even though in some cases it was, in some cases it wasn't, but it was also me displaying my level of tenacity and my commitment to being in that profession. Because I knew and imagined that an employer, if he's looking at somebody that has a laissez-faire attitude per se, towards being in that industry and doesn't necessarily want it, I know every employer wants someone who wants it. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're doing. If you are in a position where you hire somebody, the number one trait that you want to see outside of their obvious ability is the want it factor. How bad do you want this? What are you willing to do to be exceptional at this? Are you willing to go the extra mile? When is the job finished? Is it when you punch a clock or is it when the job gets done? Those are the kind of people that any employer that I've ever met has always wanted. And I knew that by showing my resolve and my tenacity as a person that was willing to work for free, as a willing, willing to do numerous internships that's and stuff impressive. like that, yep. what could they say? And that's what I did. So when I showed up to an employer uh, for uh, an internship or whatever, I remember when I first started in the business, we had folks with resumes. I had 250 published clips coming out of college. How are you going to beat that? You got an edge over everybody. I got the edge. And are you seeing that a lot today as well, since kids nowadays coming out of college or high school, they have social media, so it's easier to have a resume to no. show? It's not easier no. today. So no. the times not, haven't changed for you. I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing that from the kids. Easier or harder today? I think it's easier, but I think, that it, I think it's easier in certain respects to be more accurate, but harder in others. It's easier to generate material that you can give mm -hmm. to a prospective employer to show your commitment or whatever. The hard part is because it's so much easier to do, many, many more people are doing it. And as a result, you have more competition than ever before. So, so let me ask you this. You know how you look at, uh, 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 in, in baseball, you, know, mm -hmm. you look at some guys that do well because long-term they're disciplined. So I'm sitting down with Billy Bean. Mm -hmm. Billy Bean says, skill set, mindset, pedigree, upbringing, strong family values, then you look at a player and say, this may be somebody we may want to invest in. What, what are things in your world that somebody's got to look at? Them? Because for you, you always say, you know, stay away from the weed. You look like a very disciplined guy, very meticulous. Obviously, even just watching you right now, very detailed. And then you have strong opinions, but it also, you're not a person that sounds like you wing it. You actually give your thought based on uh, doing some research. What would you say are great qualities in your world of somebody to sit down and become good at what you guys do? Well, I think all the things that you mentioned about Billy Bean are applicable. Um, not so much pedigree per se. Um, I think that when I, anything that's associated with my pedigree, to me, is about my mom.
my mom's work ethic, her willingness to sacrifice, her being the, the mother of six children um, and essentially having to raise us on her own. I don't talk a lot about my father and I'm not about to now uh, out of respect and deference to my mother. Both of my parents have passed away, but I did not have a close relationship with my father. Part of the reason was uh, because of how he treated my mother. The other part of the reason was because of his treatment to my mother and how it forced her to have to work so much to take care of us. I am a very, very, very old fashioned dude in certain respects. If you can't do it, you can't do it. But I'm one of those old school, old fashioned dudes from the standpoint, I believe it's not my preference um, to take care of my woman. It is my responsibility. It is not my, it is not just my job uh, to take care of my children, it is an absolute mandate. My philosophy is very, very simple when it comes to my family, particularly, you know, me being a dad. If I'm hung, if they're hungry, it's because I'm starving. I don't eat until they eat. I'm not comfortable until they're comfortable. I don't have unless they have. That's the mentality, and that's the mentality that I strictly get from my mother. And so for me, you know, having that kind of mentality, well, what comes with that? What comes with that is a certain work ethic that you have to put forth, and it's a willingness to sacrifice. Am I the most disciplined person in the world? No. Am I the most meticulous person in the world like some people would believe? No, I'm meticulous enough and I'm disciplined enough, but I always I also know how to let go and relax or whatever, and sometimes I may not be as disciplined as I should be. But I think the key thing is, is that the bottom line is everything to me. And whatever the bottom line requires is what I'm going to do. If the bottom line requires an excessive level of discipline, I'm going to do it. If I can slack off a little bit and still achieve that goal, I might pick and choose from time to time to slack off just a little bit. Yeah. But to me, it's whatever the moment or the situation demands. And it's I'm a bottom lines oriented kind of person. I have an assistant. I have people who work for me. I have people who work with me. They'll tell you I'm very bottom line kind of guy. If you tell me that the job is going to get done and the job is going to get done in an excellent fashion and it requires 90 percent effort, I'll let you go with that. I'll let you get away with that. I'm not going to sweat it. But if this means if this needs one, if this requires 100 percent and you give me 99, I might want to fire you because I'm not I'm about getting the job done. Sure. It's about yep. the results. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, when we look at our generation today, not enough people preach about that. You know, they, why do you they, think that is? Because I think that we live in a society where people have become masters at pointing the finger at other people about reason as to reasons why things don't get done. I think there's too much explanation that goes on. And you know, I remember like I'm friends with Gail King. I know Gail King, Oprah's friend for sure. a very, very long time. I remember years ago she and I had this argument because I always accuse stuff like that of being this Oprah-fied world that we live in. <clears throat> and I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion at all. I love me some Oprah Winfrey. She's the queen and she's a goddess in my eyes for all the things that she's done for various communities throughout this country. But I do believe that generation, led by the likes of an Oprah Winfrey, introduced explanations into everything. We can explain why this happened. There's a reason why this person acted up. There's a reason why they messed up, etc. And I'm like, no, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying some stuff don't I don't need to know the reason why. 
If you are a murderer, for example, I don't necessarily need to know the reason why you are one. I understand that to do the due diligence and put forth your research and what have you, and maybe we can study this psychopath or what have you and find out why they did what they did. But I don't need to understand all the reasons behind why you did something to know that you need to spend the rest of your life in prison or in some people's eyes, the death penalty. I don't need if you are somebody that's a heinous individual that you deserve a level of punishment. I don't need to know all the reasons as to why you made your mistake before I need to know that you're going to pay a price for it. If you are a person that shows up to work and there are a multitude of reasons as to why you can't get the job done, I might be empathetic. But the bottom line is you ain't getting it done. And if you're not getting it done, I need somebody that can get it done. And every boss, every employer that I've ever worked for, while some may appear on the outside more empathetic, more sympathetic than others, where they are similar is the requirement in getting the job done because they answer the people too. And so when you look at it from that perspective and you have that kind of mentality, I am of the belief that if you truly, truly adopt that belief in your soul, mm -hmm. then you walk to work every day not looking for excuses. You're looking for a way for the job to get done. And in most instances, you are going to be successful than not. Is that a transferable mindset? Meaning, uh, does a person have to be willing to take that mindset to internalize it? Or can somebody just say, I don't want to deal with it, even in your world? They can do both. They can do both, but I will assure you of this. The person that says they don't want to deal with it is not a person that's going to be successful at doing whatever that respect. Yet you requires. believe they can, though. They can. In most instances, I believe people can because I don't believe that employers usually put you in a position where they know you will fail if indeed their objective is success. If I'm a boss, it behooves me to place you in a position where I believe you can succeed because you'll make me look good. Why would I want to make myself look bad? So I'm going to put you in a position where I think you can perform and you can succeed and you can make both of us look good. But if you don't have that kind of mindset and you are a boss that has the kind of mindset, it doesn't matter to me what you do. You're a good person. I like you, but I know you're not qualified for this job. Chances are that boss is not going to be successful. So one of the things I like about you is the fact that you sit there and you say, well, you know, Max will say something, then you'll say, well, I understand. But even on this show, we have to understand that somebody can come here and just because they disagree with us and we disagree with them, that they're wrong and we can't have a platform for them. I think mm -hmm. you and Max have talked about even this was like three or four weeks ago. Yeah. Why, why is it, Stephen A., that you, when you're giving your discourse, your feedback, whatever it may be, you're thinking from the employer standpoint, the player standpoint, the media standpoint, the, do you think that's an edge for you? Because very few people have the lens to look at it from everybody's perspective. I don't think everybody comes from my background. I don't think they come from my perspective. But where does the employer background come allow from? Allow me to explain Please. that. I'm relatively successful. I'm certainly not poor anymore, but I've starved. I know what that's like. So when you are a person from a disenfranchised community, or dare I say a disenfranchised position, there is empathy for that. But there's a reality that that disenfranchised person has to accept because you don't get to change that. You don't get to legislate people's heart, mind, bodies and souls in most instances. They are who they are. You are who you are. What it's important to understand, especially in this day, more so than ever before, where the outlets, the tentacles that you have to reach the masses 
it can give you a false sense of empowerment. This belief that you can reach anybody. Absolutely true. It does not mean everyone wants to hear you. It does not mean everybody's going to care about what you have to say. There's a whole bunch of people with a Twitter account. They don't have 4.3 million followers. There's a whole bunch of people with Instagram accounts taking pictures all over the place. They don't have 2.2 million followers. There are people that have 50 million followers, 80 million followers. But still people will tell them to shut up and dribble or shut up and play your music and leave us alone. And don't get into politics. Don't get into this or that. What I'm saying is those people might use their platform or, or attempt to use their platform to disseminate a message about something completely yeah. different and separate from what they're attaching themselves to at that particular moment in time, because that's what important to that's what's important to them. The problem is, is that at times you're touching on something that is of no interest to the masses as it pertains to what's coming from you because they pigeon, they pigeonhole mm. you. They've defined yeah. what they want to hear from you. And as a result, if you step out of that lane, some might be receptive. Some might lie in wait just to excoriate you because they believe that you're out of your lane. So if you're understanding that, now transfer that to mm -hmm. the business world. I might have a situation where, you know what? I think I could do Monday Night Football. ESPN's like, no, we want you to do NBA. Well, last time I checked, I'm under contract for ESPN. I'm not under contract for Fox. I'm not under contract for NBC. I'm under contract for ESPN. So that's strike number one. Strike number two, they have pretty damn good voices on Monday Night Football who are far more qualified to do football than I do. Strike number three, I'm pretty damn good at this. First take, radio. NBA, etc. That's generating millions upon millions of dollars sure. for ESPN. Well, what does that mean? Why would we want to upset that Apple cart to put you in a different venue that we don't know if you'll succeed at, but we're already successful at? So I can want what I want. I can believe what I can believe. Yeah. I can think whatever I want to think. But do I have the say? The answer is no. And the reason why that's something that you have to embrace is because in the real world, you usually don't get to make all your decisions for yourself. Sure. Usually it involves participation and approval from other people. So why talk to just one segment of the population as opposed to this segment, this segment, this segment, this segment? It's everybody. And when I'm debating, I think usually I'm debating against people, particularly, for example, in Max's case, who's incredibly altruistic in his perspective mm -hmm. and points mm -hmm. of view, particularly when it comes to the world of politics and social sure. issues. He has one lens. This is it. Well, you come from one place. I come from a multitude of places. I've been there. I've done that. And so I see all sides. You're talking about this owner. I just had lunch with him. You're talking about this player. I just had dinner with him. You're talking about this particular athlete. Well, that's my man. I've known him for 20 years. You might be guessing. You might be right. But I know. And so as a result, it puts me in a position where I'm able to deduce the difference between my perspective, mm -hmm. an informed perspective, right. and a direct perspective where I'm impacted by the parties involved. 
All of those things come into play. And in my seat, you have to take those things into consideration if indeed you care about fairness. Was that you? You've always been like that? Always. Or was it always? So this always. isn't you work with Skip and you and him uh, clash because off camera you guys talk politics. That's my and, mother. Yeah, that, okay. That, that comes that's from your from mother. That comes from Got Janice it. Smith. My mother was, um, she was, uh, she, you know, I had a white grandmother, a black grandfather, and my mother was not about race at all, believe it or not. My mother never mentioned Very race. Very interesting. My mother never mentioned race one day in my house. My mother never kept her house, rather. You gotta be my, kidding me. Never. My mother, my mother, I can come to her everything. I, I come to my, it don't matter. Mom, they out to get me. What you do? What could you have done better? I remember I was in Detroit traveling back from a Pistons wow. game at the Palace in Auburn Hills, all the way to Romulus Marriott, about mm. an hour away in Detroit near the airport. And I got pulled over by the cops and I got surrounded by eight cops. It was completely unnecessary, uncalled for. They grabbed me out. of. They told me to get out the car. Next thing you know, three different squad cars come, two in each car, eight officers total. I had two white beat writers with me. All right. From competing papers. We were all driving back together. They handcuffed me. They put me in a squad car. They took me to the precinct in Troy, Michigan. And I was pissed. I could I, I don't know how I don't know if I've ever been that furious. I was because I thought it was so grossly unfair. And, I, and not only that, I knew I had paid the ticket. So it didn't make sense to me. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And I was upset. And then ultimately I got out of jail after about four hours. Um, bail was two hundred and fifty dollars. I had two hundred and forty one dollars cash and they wouldn't let me out until a dear friend of mine who worked for CNN kept calling them every five minutes until they let me go. I was $9 short. I knew the district attorney in that town. I wanted folks arrested. I wanted folks in trouble, whatever. I called my mother. She said, but what did you do? So what are you talking about? I didn't do anything. She said, really? What did you do? I said, mommy, I wasn't speeding. I wasn't doing, I didn't do anything. She said, you did nothing. You sure about that? And then I remembered, I was going like 10 miles over the speed limit. A and B come to find wow. out I did pay the ticket, but I paid it late. And so it got there late, which means it was in a computer, but there was a late charge of $15 that I hadn't paid. This system didn't tell them it was $15. They just said he's driving with a suspended license. So it turns out that I served time in jail for four hours in Troy, Michigan, because of a $15 late fee on a speeding ticket. And my mother said, if you had paid the ticket on time, you wouldn't have it had, had that happen. That was my mother, period. She didn't want to hear excuses. She didn't want to hear anything. Yes, people are going to be unfair. Yes, people are going to be a little bit cruel. Yes, people are going to do this and they're going to do that. How are you going to overcome it? Because if I set the stage for you to have a crutch or an excuse to That's fall unbelievable. on, what are you going to accomplish in life? That was my mother. So it kept reinforcing, taking full responsibility Every regardless day. of the... Every when was your mom's day. birthday? What month was your mom's January birthday? January 25th. Interesting. And you're April, uh, October, October 14, 67, right? That's you're right. Very interesting. What, what a, and, and would you say that mindset stayed with you from that day on till today who you are as far as your Without mom? question. Okay. Nobody had a bigger impact on me than my mom. Um, and again, we make excuses every day. All of us as human beings. There's a reason for the, what ails and, you know, the travails that we have to go through. There's always mm -hmm. a reason. But I think the thing where first take has appeared to be so perfect for me is that on far more occasions than not, 
I have to speak on the issue of accountability as it pertains to the entire sports world. And when it comes to the issue of accountability, I get all of that from mom. It happened with ESPN when my contract wasn't renewed back in 2008. I was sitting up there. I was I felt betrayed. I felt ticked off. And, you know, it, I mean, my mother let me lick my wounds for a couple of days. Mm. And then she said, what could you have done better? You sure you didn't do anything? And I thought about all this. I'm like, what, what is she talking about? This is just not true. This is not right. I work hard. I do this. I do that. And then I started thinking about it. Yeah, I was a pain in the ass. I did kind of complain a little bit too much. But the biggest thing that I remember doing is that I always came to the bosses with problems. I never came to them with solutions. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean always like I was a perennial complainer because I've never been that. That's not my style. But anytime I spoke to them about something that bothered me, my point in making that statement is that it was always about the problem, never the solution. And I learned when I sat back and reflected on the mistakes that I had made in my career at the mm -hmm. time, I learned that no boss wants to talk to anybody that doesn't have solutions. But there's a flip side. That is side. very true. There's a flip side. Yeah. I've never met a boss that doesn't want to talk to someone with solutions. See the difference? Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't want to talk to somebody with problems and you don't want to talk to somebody with solutions, then to me, you're the problem because you're not trying to solve. You want to go with status quo. You're 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 perfectly fine, you know, fine with flowing along, just safe, to get along, secure. safe, secure, whatever. But when you're trying to win, you're constantly looking to get better. And I realized as I reflected on the first part of my career at ESPN from 2003 through 2008 to May of 2009, to be exact, I just said, you know what? I didn't talk about solutions enough. I didn't talk about remedies enough. And I'm never going to make that mistake again. So I'm going to study and master my craft, my business, first and foremost. I'm not going to talk about anybody else's business unless I'm mastering my own. And when I have these conversations with them, I'm going to come up, I'm going to have solutions to any problem that I present them with. And if I don't have a solution, uh -huh. I'm not talking to them about my problem, period. It's a good mindset to have. Uh, Stephen A., did you ever have a, either an, I know you worked at SI and CNN, I think I once. CNN, SI from 1999 to 2001. Yeah, did you ever have any plans of doing politics or sports or was always sports? Um, I actually wanted to do politics. Um, I certainly wouldn't uh, uh, say I was an aficionado at it, but what I want, I've always prided myself in being a master communicator that had a decent understanding of current events. And current, uh, and current political events. And more importantly, I was incredibly confident, and maybe it's to a fault, I'll openly admit, but I am incredibly confident when I'm on camera. I really believe. Always? That, yeah. Always. I, re I, really, I really believe everyone's in my way. Literally. I, I mean, if, if for, for in, in simpler layman's terms, I walked around and I've always believed like I'm the Michael Jordan of this industry. When I'm on the air, I'm the one that will make you want to hear from me. I don't care who I'm on the air with. I don't care who it is. It does not matter to me. By the time I finish speaking, I am the one that you're going to want to listen to. That's my attitude. I'm not saying it's factual. I don't know. I mean, we are number one, but I don't know. 
But that's always been my attitude because to me, presentation matters. How you speak, how you look when you're speaking, you know, your cadence, diction, everything that flows with it. I believe I have the package. And when I'm in front of the camera, I'm not nervous. I don't feel like I'm talking to millions of people. I feel like they're listening to me. It's my domain. Big welcome difference. to welcome yeah. to my domain. This is what I dominate. What is your flow or structure or process and issues? I'm curious because you know the whole thing with first take is do you something happens, Antonio Brown happens, you know, Kobe, Shaq issue, whatever thing that takes place, mm -hmm. do you go and see what other people are saying and then first take, here's what my thoughts are? Sometimes. By, by, oh, you do that? Sometimes. Sometimes. It, it depends on when I'm coming on the air. They're like, there are sometimes, like, yeah. for example, when I was on the news sports center today, I didn't get to see anybody because I was doing first take. And then literally two minutes before the sports center hit, they got in my ear and said, mm -hmm. stay right there. Sports center needs you to do the new sports center. And that happens a lot with me in my career. Like ESPN will pick up the phone. Steven, we need you. You know, we need you on the air in an hour. <laughs> you know, we need you here now. You know, so that happens an awful lot. First take is first take, so I don't have time really to watch other folks in the morning. Uh, it's, it's rare that I get, it's not always, sometimes I get to, but 90% of the time I don't get to see anybody. So it's first take and I gotta be ready. You do your research. And what you do is you do your research and you understand what your job description is. If I'm a newspaper reporter, I'm reporting. If I'm a columnist, I'm looking for an angle that I want to address and I want to attack from an editorial perspective. On first take, it's the combination of it all. I'm editorializing, I'm opining, I'm informing, I'm entertaining, I'm doing all of these different things. That's, I'm just talking about my own individual approach. And so for me, when I gather, when I know the subject matter we're addressing, first thing I do is acquire as much information as I possibly step can. The, step one. Step one. I do nothing before I acquire the information. What sources you go to? Is it just stats, I data? Read, I, read, I, I read everything. I read the news articles, you know, the New York Daily News, the Washington Post, the LA Times, ESPN.com, Yahoo Sports, all of them. I read everything I get my hands on. If it's a particular athlete, one of the first things I do is go to a local publication because those are the people covering them every Interesting. day. Interesting. Why? It. Because I know that as a newspaper guy, no one knew about the Sixers more than me from the national level. Locally, you might have known as much, but from a national Absolutely. level, you're not there with them every day. It's a disrespect to the reporters that are on the scene to think that you know what they don't. Chances are they know more than you because they care about more of the intricate details that you care. You care when a big story comes along. You're caring if they trade a star or, you know, somebody gets in trouble or whatever. You ain't following the dude that signed a 10-day contract. You're not signing a dude to sign a one-year deal for the minimum salary. You're not paying attention to those things like that because it's not important on a national scale. But the local guys are. And so for me, anytime there's a story that's percolating, one of the first things I do is go to the local sites. Because the local newspapers, the local radio folks and stuff like that will give you more insight because they're around those folks every day. So that's part of the news gathering. Then what you do is go about the business of formulating your opinion. Then after that, if you have the time, you want to hear the opinions of other people to make sure there's something that you didn't miss. But once those bright lights come on, your voice has to be your own. Because to you, to me, sounding like somebody else,
trying to duplicate or imitate sure. somebody else is a form of plagiarism. Directly, indirectly, you know, tacit or otherwise. It's a form of plagiarism. Be uniquely you. And that's what I try to do. I think historically, I think you're the, the one reason why fans uh, uh, watch you. I mean, I'm a business guy and I listen to First Take just because I want to see how you're processing a certain issue. I'm more interested in interviews, post-game interviews, than I am of the game. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds strange. I'm more curious no. to know how people are processing it. Who did you, th who did you think was uh, in the NBA best at post-game interviews? Who did you enjoy listening to? Wow. Um, that's a tough one. But I'm going to tell you that <clears throat> for me personally, Barkley was incredibly entertainment, entertaining and frank. Not just when he was on TNT, when he was a player. That's why he ended up on TNT. Because mm -hmm. Barkley let you know how he felt. Um, guys like Charles Oakley, for example, that used to play for the New York Knicks. I mean, just, just, just no filter. If you stunk, he'd say so. No, no question about it. Shaquille O'Neal because he would disrespect somebody in a heartbreak, the Sacramento Queens and stuff like that. Um, but today in the modern era, that person usually would be somebody like a Kevin Durant. And the reason why I would say a Kevin Durant is because Kevin Durant has propelled himself to a height. He's a two-time champion. He's one of the greatest players in the world. He knows it. And He's not just more fearless than he was in the past. He's someone who laments the fearfulness he spent years enduring when he first came into the league. So he's like you or I reflected, like looking at ourselves now and realizing the growth and the maturation that we endured and recognizing that, boy, we wish we could turn back the clock. He's in a position where he feels like he can turn back the clock. And can say, that was then. Let me show you who I am now. So you never know what he's going to say. But when he speaks, particularly if he breaks down certain situations, you know what? You'll appreciate it. For example, when he was going through the first round series against the Los Angeles Clippers and Patrick Belly spent the first couple of games as an absolute pest harassing him. Mm -hmm. And Kevin Durant came out and comes to the media and he said, well, I could do this and I could do that. But I'm Kevin Durant. Y'all know who I am. That's right. You know who yeah. I am. You see, now LeBron can be that way as well. But because LeBron was always held at a very lofty status, even though he's critiqued and dissected more than almost anyone, mm -hmm. the reality is, is that he can just talk naturally, devoid of attitude, because he's just a polished individual that came into the league that way and needed to be that way. Kevin Durant actually went through a maturation process where he wants to talk and he wants to express himself. And he's literally, you know, begging you in his own way to ask him a compelling question that he wants to elaborate on. Because he doesn't want to be silent. I've never he heard just, you say this, though. He, no, he doesn't. Uh, well, but you I've, know not, I've not heard you say this, No one's though. asked me. Yeah, that's interesting. Because no I would have never guessed you would have said Kevin no, Durant. No one's asked me. But, but what I'm saying is his intellect about the game of basketball, like yeah. Kyrie is very intellectual about the game mm -hmm. of basketball. Kobe is just a professor. He can teach you about sure. the game of basketball because he's so brilliant about it. But in Kevin Durant's case, what makes him interesting, and again, I threw out the Allen Iversons, the Charles Barkleys, all of these interesting Shaq, all of these interesting and compelling individuals that I've met over the years and interviewed this athlete. But the reason why Kevin Durant stands out in my mind is now, right now is because he's the one guy that I see going through an evolution, a process of evolution where he's determined 
to sort of make up with fearlessness for the fearfulness that he had and that swarmed him at the earlier part of his career. He's anxious to show you that he doesn't care and that he knows more than you do about the game of basketball at this moment in time. How do you think he's going to return when he gets back? How, 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 how do you I think, think Kevin Durant's going to be the superstar he's always been? You think? I think Kevin Durant, worst case scenario, is averaging 25 a game. Worst Easy. case scenario. Worst case scenario, Kevin Durant will average 25 a game on 45% shooting. Because he's that great. Stephen A., I'm surprised you didn't say Michael. So Michael in interviews, no. post-game interviews, you don't polished. put him... Polished. Polished. Safe. Safe. Okay. He did it. He did the talking on the court. He annihilated you. He took you off. Michael Jordan and his power came for what, what he didn't say. Like, you know, if somebody, hypothetically speaking, because I don't remember the exact quote, but when he was going against the New York Knicks years ago and somebody said about him, Michael Jordan said, yeah, okay. And then he had nothing to say. Then he finished his interview about five or ten minutes later. And then he stopped on the podium. He said, what was that? What did that guy say again? And looked at the media. He said, who said that? Okay, thanks. And that's it. And that had you waiting for the next game because you knew <laughs> Michael was coming for him. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. So it wasn't with words. It wasn't yeah. what he said. It's what you knew he was thinking and what he was going to do. That's what made Michael Jordan powerful. But in Kevin Durant's case, LeBron and others, especially in Kevin Durant in this day and age, it's what he says and what he's going to do. Kevin Durant, everybody says he's too sensitive. He's this, he's that. You know, he's got attitude. Every single time Kevin Durant has had an attitude, he's dropped 40. Have an attitude all you want. What do I care? He's dropping 40. He's dropping 40. I would, if, if, I had, if I was a coach or I were a team owner or a team executive, and I had a guy that if you pissed him off, he would drop 40 on you. I would be devising ways to piss him off every week. So based on what you're saying is he's going to average 15 points when he comes back because you used to piss him off all the time. No, I can So now he's going you, you to, he Kevin, needs you, you to piss him off. You don't know off. Kevin Durant very well. Kevin Durant gets ticked off very, very easy. Yeah. If he sees one of us say something on first That's what take I'm saying. or whatever. No, no, I'm saying, listen. Kevin Durant and I get along. I just taped the boardroom with him. That's coming I out that, soon yeah. and what have you. Kevin Durant was arguing with me the day before over something that I said. He don't care. He'll just, he'll just text me on Instagram. What the hell was that? And he'll go off about it. That's fine. That's, how, it comes with the territory. How tough is it for you to give your what's really on your mind knowing you're friends with many of these guys, like even Magic? You know, it's very hard for, for you to be critical of Magic because when I see Magic sitting next to you, it's as if it's your brother, it's your family. We're pretty tight. Yeah, it's very obvious. How, how tough is it for you to give criticism to some of these guys that are your boys or your not best friends? It's not at all. Not even a little Come bit. Come on, Steve. Not even a little bit. Really? You know why? Because it's not personal. What do I say? I'm not talking about their family. I'm not talking about their problems. Purely business. the game. We're talking about the game. Like, you know, Allen Iverson, let me tell you something right now. I know I'm, not, I'm tight with mm -hmm. Magic and, you know, Shaq and... You know, guys like Kobe and others are cool and all of that stuff. And, but Allen Iverson is like my little brother. We're that tight. And Lord knows we had our history with each other. Allen Iverson and I once, once went eight months without talking to each other. And I was the beat writer. We walked by each other and then talked to each other by eight months, all right, because he was so furious wow. at me. And I didn't give a damn. But let me tell you something. I would never talk about his personal business. And he knows that. Unless one or two things happen. He asked me to, or he ended up in the police blotters. Because I can't avoid that. 
You see what I'm saying? That's public information. To me, that's not private. Got you end it. up in the police blotters, it's public. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that would be that that those are the only two conditions under which I would do it with any of these guys. Outside of that, you have friends. I have friends. You know how many times we look at our friends? That was some BS right there. You could have done better, you could have played better, you could have done this, you could have done that. They know this. And so for me, what I've religiously made a point of doing is that I don't blindside you. The people that I really, really know, I have access to. So nine times out of 10, I'm texting them, this is coming. Or I'm calling you, them, be this is me. coming. Wow. I don't like what you did. What the hell were you thinking? You might not want to see first take tomorrow because I'm coming. What do they tell you? No, no specifics, but what do they tell you when you say this is coming tomorrow? Uh, man, there you go with that bullshit, Stephen A. Blah, 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 blah. We start arguing a lot of times or they'll call and explain themselves or whatever. But they always know at the end of the day, I might be a very Mac, insightful. I, I might be a Mack truck, but you see me coming. And, you know, we talk about big boy rules here. With big boy rules in the world of adulthood, particularly as it pertains to corporate America and things of that nature, people have a problem with two things. When you stab them in the back or when you ignore them and don't listen to them and you've given them no outlet to influence your thoughts if you're in a position like mine. What I try to do is make sure they never have that problem with me. If you are a person that if, I, if you have access to me and I have access to you, there is absolutely no excuse in my mind how I can take a position without giving you an opportunity to express your thoughts about my position first. Now, if it can't be helped, it can't be helped. If I find out something at 9.55 and I got to go on the air at 10 a.m., okay, then I might couch what I see a little bit. What do I do? I'm honest about it. Look, I could go harder. But I, got, I know this person. I got their number. I haven't had an opportunity to call them. Let me call them. You will hold back a little bit. I'll hold to back give a little them that respect. To give them that sure. respect. Because that's what I, I would respect want. That. That's what I would want for myself. Yeah. But if I don't know you, most times, and I will say this about me, I blame you. I'm not blaming me because I am not a person that hides in studio. Or in, or in other cases, I've heard you say this before. Hide. I go to the game. Right. I go to the locker rooms. Who was it with I John Wall? Right. John Wall. There was an uh, 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 where you well, you try yeah, to have he, a conversation he, with him. He, 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 you know, listen. Let me preface my comment about John Wall by saying he's a good guy. He's not a bad guy. He just made a mistake when it came to me because he's lying. Okay. He said um, he was 36 hours before the Washington Wizards opened their season. He was seen at a nightclub drinking and partying. The problem with that is that he came into training camp overweight and out of shape. It's 36 hours before the season. People felt you were still overweight and out of shape. And then on top of it all, TMZ reported. You're looking at an individual right over there that's the head of our social media department. He came to me and said, Look at this. TMZ is reporting this with John Wall and had video. So I said, you cannot have TMZ having you on video saying this about you. That is what I said. He said, Stephen A. dimed me out and told people I was at the club. 
that's a violation of my ethics. I don't do that. I don't publicize your private business. Now, I might sit up there and see you play like garbage the next night and go like this. What were you doing last night? Because mm. your game looked that mm -hmm. bad. I might throw in a line like sure. that, but that's about it. I'm not going to sit up there and say you were here, you were here, you were there. That's your personal business. That ain't my personal business. I don't do that. Why? Because I'm covering athletes that are highly sensitive to that kind of things. And that's the generation that I come from, where there's certain codes that you don't break, reporter or no reporter. And I'm very, very big on that. And so for me to sit up there and to tell people that you're trying to paint me as something that I'm not, I will remember that when I see him and whenever we have a conversation one-on-one, -on -one, he's going to know exactly how I feel and why. I don't want people interpreting it as it's going to be more than that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm 51 years old. I'm not trying to get into a fist sure. or anything and this doesn't warrant it. I'm a grown man. But what I'm saying is don't do that. That's unethical. That's not right. You know, it's wrong. Don't paint me like that. What if I was that kind of unethical person where I wanted to paint a picture of you? You trying to tell me I couldn't pull it off? with the national platform that I have, but I would never do such a thing because I owe that to myself, my family, who I am, what my name is, and I owe it to my employer, ESPN, to be far more responsible than that. Very uh, respectful on the way you process that. Last thing here, Stephen A., let's play a game. We're gonna play NBA Draft. Sure. You got first pick all time, you gotta put all your positions together. Sure. I'm going to go second. So we're going by, we're going by positions? You could, you could say first pick, I take Will center. You can't get another center. Got then you're getting 4 3 two, one. Sure. You got first pick. Sure. Who's your first pick? Michael Jordan. Okay, I'm second pick. I got Shaq. Okay. Third pick, I have Tim Duncan. I'll take LeBron. This is prime prime. Everybody's in their prime. Mm -hmm. Prime prime. LeBron is prime, MJ. I got MJ and Tim Duncan. Mm -hmm. You got Shaq. I got Steph Curry. Really? The greatest shooter in the history of basketball? Yes. I'll take, I have Steph Curry. I'll take Larry Bird. So you have LeBron and Bird mm -hmm. with Shaq. Mm -hmm. I have Tim Duncan, Michael Jordan, and Steph Curry. Mm -hmm. See, Kobe shouldn't be left off this list. But I don't need Kobe with That's MJ. That's right. I don't need Kobe with MJ. I'm going to take Kawhi Leonard. Very interesting right there. Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi, I would take Scottie Pippen, but Kawhi Leonard was a better shooter. Okay. I'm not saying these are not no, like no, top I, ten players. I get it. I'm talking no, about No, no, this is draft. This, this is a team. different game. This, yes, is, a this different is a game. different game. I'll take Malone. Which Malone? Carl uh, Malone. Mm. I'll put him four against Tim. I'll put... Uh, so you have LeBron, Bird, Carl Malone. Who else? Shaq. And Shaq. Yeah. I've got Akeem and Dream, Olajuwon. I got Kobe. That's a good matchup. That's a good squad. Who wins out of seven? That's a tough one. I'd say me. You think so? I have the greatest shooter on the planet. I have the greatest player and the greatest assassin to have ever lived. And I have a guy, I have the big fundamental who's money. He would, he would outplay a Carl Malone. He would outplay even a Kevin McHale. He can play center. And I have a guy in Akeem the Dream, Nalajuwon, who we all know what he brings to the table. You do have Bird, but you have a suspect shooter, particularly from the free throw line, in LeBron James. And you have a guy that may be the most dominant force of our lifetime in Shaquille O'Neal, who's also a liability at the free throw line, not to mention 
had it given to him by Olajuwon in his prime. And so as a result of that, when all else fails, I have offense all over the place. I have defense with Kawhi Leonard, with Michael Jordan, okay? I got that going on with Olajuwon and Tim Duncan, by the way. And when all else fails, you know what I can do that you can't refute at all? Give the ball to him. All else fails, all I have to do is foul you. You've got two guys that I can just foul. I can foul LeBron. I can foul uh, Shaquille O'Neal. Would that be your strategy? If, if it's uh, no, no, no. For- I mean, there's no question. There's no question. I, I, it would have to be. It would. Ha- I have a volume. Shooter. I got better passes have, than you I, do, though. No, yeah, but are they willing to pass? Who is the Bird will pass. LeBron will pass. Excuse me. Bird will pass, but he's a better shooter. So sure. No, no. He not only see Bird is a passer, but a great shooter who's not going to have faith in the other guy's ability to shoot. So he's going to want to shoot more. Okay, so that's a problem. I got Kobe, who's a volume shooter, and he's going to be his ego's going to get involved because he's going to want to take out MJ. He's going to want to take out MJ. Can't help himself. Can't do it. Okay, he's going to want to go after MJ. Okay, it doesn't matter who you have. I have the greatest shooter on the planet in the history of basketball who is at least 90%. How's he going to guard my one? He's not going to. He can't guard my one. He can't play defense. And who's your one? Uh, I'll put LeBron at one. Okay, you can say that, but again, I'll just foul him. And I'll turn him into a two-point shooter, and I have a three-point shooter. How many times are you going to foul him, though, or Shaq? You could say that. I'm going to foul him when it counts. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think foul, it's... I'm going to foul him when it counts. He's going to hit threes for me. Kawhi Leonard, I can switch. I can switch and have him do that. Oh, by the way, I can sit up there and put Steph on Kobe. Now, Kobe will eat him up. But Kobe will take him down in the post, or LeBron will take him down in the post. You have two-point scorers. I have a three-point assassin. I have a guy in Kawhi Leonard that shot 40% from three-point range. I have elite defenders in Tim Duncan, Michael Jordan, and Kawhi Leonard, along with Elijah Wan. I got the dream shake Who's in the Who's going to go through Shaq, I though? got the dream. Well, excuse me. Nobody's going to go in terms of Who's what? going to go through Shaq, What do you mean though? go through? Defense. You mean stop Shaq? Oh, no, just go through Shaq no, no. when he's playing stop defense. To Sha- when Shaq's playing defense? Oh, yeah. Oh, the Dream did that already. Ask Shaq. Against Shaq? Ask him. Out of seven. 1995. Do your homework. Prime, prime. Check him out. Prime, prime, though. Check him out. Prime, prime. Doesn't matter. Shaq was never. But Shaq's ever. prime's not 95, Shaq though. Can, Shaq would tell you the one person that he would not want to guard is Akeem, the dreamer, put him against Ewing, put him against David Robinson, put him against anybody you want, Shaq would destroy them. He has never uttered a disrespectful oh, syllable I, I, I'm aware against of that. Akeem, the dreamer. And by yeah. the way, my last point, who was drafted number three in 1984? Jordan. No, yeah, right? Jordan. Right? Yeah. The Portland Trailblazers drafted who at number two? Sam Bowie. Remember how you know, they, they thought they should have fired those folks twice, mm-hmm. right? Jordan has six rings, right? Akeem Olajuwon only has two, right? Akeem Olajuwon only had two when Jordan retired sure. from to go play baseball. That first mm-hmm. year, Jordan was going. The second year, he came back with 17 games left, was taken out by the Orlando Magic semifinals. Nick Anderson, Dennis Scott, Shaquille, and all of that stuff, right? So that's six rings to two, right? Tell me one person in basketball history, I'm talking about as fans, Who've ever knocked the Houston Rockets for taking Akeem to Dream one? Ever. Because remember, they could have had Jordan, but they never took Jordan. They took the dream. Tell me one person anywhere on this planet Earth. 
whoever uttered a negative word at the Rockets for taking. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If that doesn't speak to your greatness, what does? Let me ask you, in top five, you put Akeem ahead of Shaq? Um, Greatest. Forget about positions. No, no, no. I think think, think that Shaq was more dominant, all right? But what I'm saying to you is I picked Akeem because you picked Shaq. I get it. You see what I'm saying? I think I'm, I, I, picked, I think I'd be edged though with the I center though. Picked, I could have picked Will or whatever, but what I'm saying to you is that Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon could go tit for tat offensively, but more importantly, could hit free throws. So how can we do this? Is there a simulator to put on a game to see how that's going to work? We got to do it just to kind of get a feel. But then you can't figure out the bench because you got to get the bench and all that going. Anyways, uh, look if you if you don't follow Stephen A. and you're in business. And somehow, somewhere, you don't follow sports at all, but you want to find out how to process, go follow all his social media stuff and see how he deciphers through issues. Uh, that can help you in any kind of business, investments, entrepreneur, CEO, whatever you're doing can help you out. Stephen A. Brother, thank you so much for making the time. Really enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed it. Truly enjoyed it. did. Yes, thank, thank you, so you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid David, and I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.